Welcome to Behind the Curtain, L.A. Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. Pulled from the vaults and recorded on February 16, 2019, this talk by Dr. Holly Rapogla Wong explores the idea of opera as public relations, and in particular, Mozart's Clemency of Titus as an example of political messaging. Dr. Wong earned her Ph.D. in musicology at UCLA and has taught courses on film music, the American musical, and classical crossover genres at UC Berkeley and UCLA. She also speaks frequently for L.A. Opera. Okay, who has seen the Fire Festival documentaries? So these documentaries that are chronicling the remarkable schadenfreude and collapse of what was supposed to be the next Coachella in the Bahamas, I believe. One of the most important themes in both of these films that are making a documentary of this sort of crash of this festival um, has a lot to do with the power of media, um, particularly image and music, film and word, to influence public opinion and to influence public desire. So it matters quite a lot then to kind of be aware of, you know, okay, who's sponsoring the content we're consuming? Why uh, would an influencer enter into that partnership to begin with? Um, and what message is being sent to the consumer? Like why that particular influencer for that particular thing that's being sold? What is it about their background um, that makes the partnership attractive to the person who wants to sell something to their many, many constituents. So with that in mind, um, let's kind of pivot a little bit, thinking about some other tools of public opinion shaping public desire, which is the theater. We're here to talk about the Clemency of Titus, Mozart's opera. And contemporaries of Mozart thought of theater as a form of media, a way of shaping thought. We have writings from many contemporaries talking about theater as a pedagogical tool, even, that can be wielded, um, even to the purposes of statecraft or nation building. Um, and this is something that goes way back. This isn't just Mozart and his contemporaries. I mean, you have um, the Catholic Church putting on performances to try to convert folks. You have Shakespeare doing commentary on the monarchy. So political messaging is a common trait in theater and in opera. The very beginnings of opera in the 1600s, the beginning of the 1600s, they were court spectacles. These were things that were sort of intended to praise the nobility, the people who were funding these operas to begin with. Yes, it's a big artistic move forward, but then it's also kind of bound up in the politics of its day as well. So you have that. 18th century public opera um, in France also shows sort of increasing polarity. You can find operas that are very pro-royalist, and then you have other operas that are expressing sentiments of um, the French Revolution. So you have the earliest opera theaters that um, are in residences of the nobility of the wealthy, and even the public opera houses that crop up towards the middle of the 17th century often have some kind of state funding behind them as well. Um, so whoever's in charge, rulers, have some kind of authority over what can go up on stage, over censorship laws that are enforced by appointed officials. And then, of course, the just the influence of the taste of the royal person has a lot to do with what ends up going on the stage. If they have all the money and they have all the power and they like a particular kind of opera, you better believe that's the kind that is going to be produced by the theater that they're throwing a lot of money at. So through theater, you have you know this opportunity for rulers to influence values. They think that they can kind of 
set a, up a, you know, censorship laws. You can keep subversive content under wraps, content that they might consider to be dangerous to their position, to be withheld. And then just taste, you know, what kinds of sounds they like, what kind of music they prefer. Um, and then, of course, you have the element of propaganda present. This is from a contemporary of Mozart's um, writing um, about theater in 1790, has our century not seen an emperor at a performance of La Clemenza di Tito, listening to the voices of humanity and forgiveness? Now, of course, Mozart's opera wasn't premiered until 1791. Um, the clemency of Titus existed in many other forms before Mozart got his hand on it, and we'll talk about some of those forms. Um, but there are other plays, other operas. It was a very uh, popular opera for quite, uh, and play for quite some time. And even from the get-go, this was a libretto, a play that was written with the purpose of celebrating a ruler. This is the message for those who are consuming this particular piece of media. And there are other elements of kind of social contract at play. It's like, yes, you have somebody who's, you know, being praised by this particular content. But then the content in there is also, oh, look how great our ruler is. He's so forgiving and he's so human and he's so like the rest of us and he's really looking out for us. So there's a little bit of a two-way street there, the hopes that this ruler is not going to disappoint them in all these things that they're you know, sort of laying on pretty thick about how great they are. Um, Mozart's version of this story um, from 1791, even that opera itself really had its ups and downs over the past couple centuries over um, how it's been received uh, for posterity. Even Mozart's first biographers, who were writing pretty soon after he died, kind of tiptoe around the clemency of Titus a little bit. Like, oh, he was sick. Oh, he didn't have a lot of time to write it. And those are kind of the more generous um, excuses for people maybe not liking Clemency of Titus as much of his other operas. As you head into the 19th century, the critiques start to get a little more strident, um, calling the opera outdated, which is something that Professor Morris talked to you a little bit about, the sort of sounds that are lost, and then also calling it a sellout to a propaganda machine. You got your hashtag spawn con of the very worst kind here. Um, now, of course, there are particular values, 19th century romantic era values that are evoking this kind of critical resistance to Titus, but there's consequences for this. This resistance to Titus ends up kind of making its way well into the 20th century, and it wasn't really until kind of the second half of the 20th century that this opera starts to get revived and performed a little bit more often. But with all that in mind, let's kind of take it back and look a little bit at the background of where this opera is coming from whenever it was commissioned. So a little bit of historical background here. Uh, Leopold II, who was the emperor king that this was written for, for his coronation, with his older brother, Emperor Joseph II, who he took over for after Joseph died. So the historical context of this really matters. This opera was a commission, as I said, from the Estates of Bohemia. Uh, Leopold II was going around getting crowns from every possible municipality that he was in charge of, and the Estates of Bohemia were no exception. He'd already been crowned the Holy Roman Emperor. And so after that, it's just a matter of collecting the smaller crowns, I suppose. He was part of the Habsburg royal family. He came to power shortly after the French Revolution, which, of course, his sister, Marie Antoinette, is right in the middle of. And the whole family was kind of facing a number of rebellious situations. Marie Antoinette obviously facing the sort of most dire consequences of rebellions. Um, but then 
uh, Joseph and Leopold also. Joseph in 17, the late 1780s made a number of reforms that were unpopular in various districts of um, their purview. One of the biggest ones being the Edict of Toleration. Folks who were in sort of heavily Catholic enclaves felt that it was taking away from their belief system and their power to sort of empower other Christian faiths as not being sort of lesser than, than them. And all of these reforms that Joseph II was making were in part to make a centralized rulership a little more effective for him. But that ends up kind of coming around to bite him a little bit because you have a rebellion that breaks out in the Austrian Netherlands. Um, in that same year, you have the French Revolution coming about as like the big backdrop to all of this happening. Joseph II dies in the next year, right around the time whenever the rebels in the Austrian Netherlands declare themselves the United States of Belgium. And Leopold II takes over to deal with this. By the end of the year, he suppresses the rebellion, um, but then he also has to deal with a new issue in Bohemia. The Bohemian aristocrats are particularly unhappy with one of Joseph's reforms, which was to uh, free the serfs of Bohemia. Now, of course, the aristocrats are unhappy with this because of the sort of economic and labor issues that this would bring up. And so they were threatening to break away and cause a lot of political instability. And so one of Leopold's acts is to roll that edict back and press the serfs back into servitude. Um, so yeah, you always have to take this enlightened absolutist thing with a grain of salt. As he's sort of suppressing rebellions and putting serfs back into servitude, you have a series, a very long rollout of coronations that are happening. I mean, it's a very slow consolidation of power that he does. And some of it, you know, a lot of it has to do, of course, with the sort of spectacle of it, as he can kind of go from place to place, from city to city, and have an elaborate coronation ceremony with days of festivities all planned out around him as a way to sort of impress the people of saying, look, this is the person who is very much in charge now, um, and sort of shock and amaze with all of these spectacles. So in 1791, he gets around to rolling out the uh, King of Bohemia crown, and the estates of Bohemia, um, you know, appeased by now having their slaves back, um, they make plans for a very large coronation. And one of the things that they do is they go to their local opera house there, the opera house at Prague, and they go to the impresario, Guardasoni, and say, we want a new opera commissioned for this event. It's, and it was one of several musical entertainments. You had plays, you had concerts, you had operas, I mean, it was the whole sort of gamut of entertainment over the several days in September that the coronation took place. And so they go to Guardasoni and say, okay, we want an opera, what can you do? And they draw up a contract. He makes this agreement in July of 1791 to deliver an opera by the beginning of September. He does have an opera house in place, so at least he has a venue, and at least he has you know, his chorus and his stock singers and his secondary singers, but there are a lot of other things he had to pull in place. Um, and I love looking at this contract because it's interesting to see what was prioritized here. Number one, I promised to give them a primo musico, which was the 18th century polite way of referring to castrati, and I'll get to that in a minute, of the first rank, 
such as Marchesini, Rubinelli, just lists like several castrati there, right? And there was actually an additional clause. If he got Marchesi, then he would get even more money. Um, but he didn't get Marchesi, he got somebody else who's actually not on this list, but he was still a pretty solid performer for the day. Likewise, I promised to give them a prima donna, uh, likewise of the first rank, the best of that level who's free of other engagements because two months out, good luck. Um, but he did um, find a very distinguished prima donna, uh, Maria Marchetti, who specialized in these tragic heroines that Dr. Morris was talk talking to us about. So you have first the singers, and then there's a little clause saying all the other singers can come from your, from your own like stock people that you already have. Great. Uh, two, I promise to have the poetry of the libretto composed on one of the two subjects given to me and have it set to music by a distinguished composer. But in the case, it should not be possible to accomplish this. <laughs> it's like, okay, yes, write a full libretto, give it to the composer, two months, no problem, and rehearse it. I promise then to procure an opera composed on Metastasio's Tito. So a pre-existing libretto, The Clemency of Titus. So basically, the composer is pretty far down the list of people he has to get. He can choose whatever composer he wants even, as long as it's you know a guy who's pretty good at what he does. So compared to the A-list castrato and the A-list prima donna, the composer is pretty far down the list. Fortunately, he's able to pull this off and he's able to um, bring a couple of people on board. Um, one of them is Domenico Bedini, who was, like I said, a pretty solid, well-known castrato performer in his time. Now, castrati only performed in opera seria. You would not see them in a comic opera for a lot of reasons. To put them in a comic opera is to invite ridicule of the individual, of the entire sort of institution of castrati that are being produced for serious opera and for the high Catholic church. So castrati are very much an emblem of serious opera. Um, they're individuals who were you know, very expensive to bring on board to your production. They're individuals who are at the time also were very much recognized as being other in some way because of the body the forced body modification. And they would often develop sort of physical characteristics too that were a little bit different, a little bit taller, a little more barrel chested. And you have with the castrati this very extreme version of body modification in order to serve a larger system. So it's interesting to kind of think about that in the context of opera and the service that it enacts to the nobility. Now, Guardasoni's found his primo musico and he gets himself off to Vienna now to find a composer. He asks Salieri first, Antonio Salieri, who was the Kapellmeister of the Viennese court, and he was just too busy. So then he went to Mozart. So Salieri you know, very much had the position and the rank and the authority and the fame um, to be asked first. So Guardasoni, for him, Mozart was the second choice. There's a lot of speculation about why um, Mozart took the opera. A lot of the earlier scholars will sort of argue that, oh, he didn't want to do it. It was old fashioned. Of course, you know, Mozart was cutting edge. Why would he want to do this? Um, but you have to remember, realistically, what Mozart wanted to do most of all, his ambition was to write operas. That's what he wanted most of all. Yes, he wrote a lot of wonderful instrumental works, but opera was really where his heart was and where he wanted to be. And so if an emperor comes into power who really loves opera seria, by God, Mozart's gonna write some good opera serias for him, or he really wanted to. And so he accepts the commission. He got, 
starts composing in July to produce something to be rehearsed and performed by the beginning of September. And it is an opera seria that he's writing. And this is a genre that he hasn't done in quite a while. He did Idomeneo a little bit earlier in her, his career, but now he's circling back. And he's writing this kind of around the same time that he's writing Magic Flute. So two really different operas at the same time for two really different audiences. So you have this contract that's specifically asking for a serious opera, a very prestigious form of opera, one that's expensive. You saw with the sets, with the singers who were really expensive, um, the lavish costumes that are used for special occasions to impress people. And opera seria is a form that um, by the time Mozart is getting around to it, it's been around for a while. It's gone through a pretty extensive codification process. You have all these composers who've been writing in the genre for quite some time. Metastasio, who is one of the libretti who was at the forefront of sort of codifying the form of serious opera, where you have all these conventions that you will see and hear in serious opera that Metastasio was really kind of key at developing, in part because his librettos were just so popular. He would write a libretto and then like 30 composers over the course of the next 20 years would set it. And that's the case with um, The Clemency of Titus. He wrote this opera, uh, this libretto back in the 1730s, and then it was set, and then many other composers went about working on it, which is why it was still well known by the time Guardasoni gets around to having Mozart do one. Now, it's interesting to note, opera seria in Vienna was kind of going through a process of maybe falling out of fashion a little bit under Joseph II. Um, Joseph II famously found opera seria kind of boring, supposedly. It may have been that he just didn't want to spend the money on it. But whatever his reasons, um, his taste is going to greatly, greatly influence what operas are produced in the city. So you have a kind of push towards operas that are a little closer to something like a comic opera. But when Leopold comes into power, Leopold had spent a lot of his young life um, as a ruler in Tuscany and in other parts of Italy. So he liked opera seria. Opera seria was still going strong where he was coming from. Um, so whenever he gets into power, he restructures the state theater in Vienna so that more opera serias can be produced. He lets Lorenzo de Ponte go, one of Mozart's librettists who wrote a lot of comic operas. Um, he lets singers go and brings in other singers who are more suited to the opera seria genre. So Mozart's return is very much influenced by this change in tide um, as well. So Metastasio first produces this in 1734, and it's first produced by another Habsburg court composer, um, Antonio Caldara, one of um, Salieri's um, progenitors in that role. Metastasio, when he first wrote this opera libretto, The Clemency of Titus, he is drawing from a number of places for his inspiration. And I see later in the day, um, you have someone coming in to tell you a little bit more about um, the Emperor Titus. So I'll just give you kind of a quick background here of what Metastasio was looking at uh, when he was writing this opera. He's looking at, yes, the history of Titus, who ruled from 79 AD to 81 AD, short reign. He's consulting um, the 12 Caesars, the Suetonius history, but he's also looking at a couple of French plays from the 17th century that were pretty popular. Corneille's play, The Clemency of Augustus, and then Jean Racine's Berenice. Now, in looking at this particular set of works, Suetonius's history and then a couple of plays, you have a historical posterity about Titus emerging that is one of benevolence, 
that his reign was a period of, of peace and sort of happiness. Um, you have a time period where he's spending a lot of money. He finishes the Colosseum. He donates an awful lot of money to Pompeii. This is when Vesuvius blows up, right? Suetonius writes, he had such winning ways. He was an object of universal love and adoration. Now, of course, we only have Suetonius's word because we don't have any other sort of histories from the time period talking about him. So we have this one voice who is very influential in shaping how others see him down the line and write about him in these plays. Of course, was he that good? Was he that good at crafting his image? Maybe since he was only ruling for two years, he didn't have enough time to make everyone mad? I don't know. So following Caldera's setting in 1734, you have other composers too, and then Mozart gets around to it. There was a kind of a break for about 20 years where no one really set the clemency of Titus before Mozart got to it. So why does he, you know, why is Guadassoni asking him to revisit this old chestnut? Well, there's a lot of reasons. The answer is in the political content. So all of this, you have to remember, all of this is like backdrop by the French Revolution. Yes, the Habsburgs weren't directly dealing with it in Vienna, but of course their sister was. So by extension, the royal family was dealing very strongly with the French Revolution. The increased public discourse, both in speech and in writing about what is the point of the monarchy? And Leopold is dealing, of course, with his internal threats that I laid out at the beginning of this talk too. So he starts this ideological campaign against the French Revolution. He slowly consolidates his power through all of these rituals that are you know, uh, pageants of acceptance and love of their ruler, right? Spread out over several months and also in lots of forms of media. Look at this image, it's a little hard to see, I know, but this is an image of Leopold II's coronation as Holy Roman Emperor and there he is, you know, on the dais with the columns around him, the young woman, the pretty young woman kneeling and offering up a tray of hearts. She's the personification of Germany, of the German people. Yeah, it's really laying it on. Um, the winged creature above is fame, sort of announcing, yeah, thank you, to the world. Look at this benevolent ruler who's receiving the hearts of the people. And if you look at this, this whole thing, this whole drawing looks like a stage drawing. You have the clouds in the background, kind of like what you saw in the Farinelli clip. You have the winged creature descending, like you have a chariot descending in that Farinelli clip. So the ceremony is very much rendered here as a theatrical spectacle. And look at all these people. It's like a big audience watching the performance. But then you can see kind of in the corner down here, oh yeah, right there, those two guys right there shaking hands. These guys aren't actually completely focused on the emperor. Is this fraternité? Uh, perhaps they're trying to make an argument with this drawing here that, well, if you have a king who's benevolent and kind, the people will thrive and be free. Fraternité, we've got it right here. You can have your cake and eat it too. And I'll get back to Marie in a minute. So, you know, trying to kind of maybe bring up the specter of the, of the French Revolution while also gentling it down and being like, look, you have this kind ruler. What do you need a rebellion for? You can shake hands and be brothers regardless. So in Mozart's and Metastasio's Clemency of Titus, we have a story about an enlightened monarch who's confronted with a violent rebellion and he suppresses it. You have a depiction of this coup um, at the end of act one that not only fails, but it turns out to be completely unnecessary. You have patrician conspirators 
you have this wise and noble and virtuous ruler who deals with all of that. So there's a lot of echoes of what Leopold was dealing with whenever he first came into power. The revolutionary movements in Bohemia, in the Netherlands, um, patrician conspirators, the folks in Bohemia who were unhappy about various reforms that his brother had brought. So you have immediately like a number of points of articulation here. And there's already a long established tradition of associating this particular Roman emperor, Titus, with the Habsburgs. Whenever Metastasio was writing the clemency of Titus, his libretto, the first setting of it was a birthday celebration for Leopold II's grandpa, the Emperor Charles VI. And Metastasio wrote this inscription to him. Oh, don't believe it. I don't, I'm not portraying you in Titus. So I can see well that everyone recognizes you in him. So I don't need to be obvious. Everybody's going to see this connection, that you feel in your heart what Titus is feeling, that you resemble him is not my fault. So you have this benevolent ruler being compared with modern rulers in Leopold II's own family already. Um, and even with Leopold before his coronation, whenever he was over in Tuscany, you had Tuscan poets comparing him to Titus. So it's a connection that has been going on for some time and kind of receives its biggest incarnation with the clemency of Titus um, in September of 1791. So composing Titus, Mozart and his collaborator Mazzola, who took Metastasio's libretto and kind of changed it up a little bit, this was common practice to take an opera seria libretto and make adjustments and cuts. So it wasn't weird for him to do this. Some of the cuts he made were just for length. It was a really long libretto. He cut it down to two acts. He simplifies the plot. He cuts out a lot of the action of the secondary characters. So you can instead focus on the main ones and really kind of get the strong sense of allegory by just watching the leads and not having to pay attention to all these other kind of B plots. One of the things Mazzola does is he cuts out things that could be a little too revolutionary. Um, there's a line from Vitellia. I'm going to read it to you. Um, I can't play it for you because, of course, it doesn't actually end up in the opera. She sings, or she says, I propose to you that you liberate the fatherland, break its shackles, honor your own memory, let our century have its own Brutus. So this is a little too close to revolutionary rhetoric, so it was out. Metastasio, when he was writing, this is very pre-French Revolution, so it wasn't really a concern for him to like run up against censorship with this. Let's look at a couple of scenes now. I want to show you um, Titus's first aria, and he is singing this to Sesto. And in the clip that I'm going to show you, you're going to see little Anio in the corner, like tearing his hair out because he thinks Titus is going to marry his girlfriend and he's really broken up, but he really loves Titus too. So what is he supposed to do? And then he leaves. And then the focus is on Titus and Sesto. And Sesto already, Vitelli has already asked him to do this whole coup thing. So he's really torn up about what he wants to do about that. So that's Sesto's subtext is played really hard here. This is a performance from about... Mm, 2005, you'll see Susan Graham, actually, those of you who have seen Susan Graham recently in performance here at the LA Opera, she's Sesto. Tormento, 
the magic flute. A lot of people have drawn similarities between this musically and Sorastro's song, yeah, in the magic flute. Both of them are about the sort of burdens of leadership. Yes, it's like the tenor version. Sorastro's like way down here and then he's like way up here. But there's a similarity in the composition and making the melody very straightforward and heartfelt. And it's very interesting here to think about how this scene plays out. Sesto is present and listening to all of this as he's singing about you know, this sort of devotion to rulership and having Sesto, and Susan Graham plays it so nicely here, she's just utterly shamed by guilt here. And having Sesto present with Titus singing this to him, it lowers any sort of ambition for revolution. Very, it just sort of throws it down into the dirt. You have this poor, tormented ruler. How could anybody want to rebel against this great guy, right? So you have here, with Sesto being present, this sense of shame that starts to kind of build up. And this will be emphasized at the end of this act, at the end of act one, whenever you have the coup happen. Metastasio's coup scene takes place mostly off stage. When Mazzola and Mozart revise it, they make it more violent more realistic. You have the main characters in the palace kind of cowering as they hear voices outside and they see flames. So the coup is something that is presented as something to be feared, something very real to be feared. And the drama of it is much more drawn out. They spend the entire end of the first act on it. Also, Metastasio's coup that's talked about in the middle of an act. So whenever Mazzola and Mozart move it to the end of act one, the end of act one is a place of prominence. That's the, mo that's the moment you've been working for, for the last hour to get here. So they wanted to make a big deal about it. And then they also end the act in complete uncertainty. We don't know if Titus is still alive. We don't know if the coup was successful. We don't know what's happening. And so you end the act with all of these questions. So it's a very dramatic end to an act. You have to go off to intermission. It's not till you get back that you hear, oh, he's alive. Oh, the coup failed. Okay, we're good. By placing it in this place of prominence, it also places it in this place of question and forces the audience to kind of deal a little bit with the emotions of it, a little more, sort of dwell on the emotions a little bit longer than it would have been if they just kind of thrown it in the middle of the act like it had originally been. Let's take a quick look at this too. So Sesto has just had this long, tragic monologue, trying to sort of get up the guts to go and assassinate Titus. Oh, my God. 
Who indeed? The dramatic lady in the black veil, maybe? <laughs> much shame here. Vitelli is like, I hate myself. Sesto was just, uh, we, we also getting into this, we have this long monologue from Sesto that's so abject. And so you have all this abjection, so much shame, um, with Vitellia even being horrified by what's happening. And then you have the violence of it. You have the chorus off stage going, ah, 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 ah. That's what they're singing. They're punctuating. Like, look at all this fire. Look at this chaos. And then um, musically, you have some instrumentation that we haven't heard since the beginning. At the beginning of the opera, you have the big overture, the everyone sit down and shut up music, and it's drums and trumpets. And there it's celebratory. It's, hey, look at our great opera, look at our great emperor. Here they bring it back because they are instruments we haven't heard in a while, and then they can be used in such a way that they're very, the volume is very loud. The sounds of them are very piercing, and so Mozart throws that into the mix to kind of add to the drama of it, something we haven't heard in a while. So you have the political tor turmoil here that's being represented on stage, not only by the characters who are kind of huddling in terror, but also the sounds around them, the, the sort of like surround sound of voices and music coming at you with the sounds of the horrors of Rome. One of the things that Mazzola and Mozart also do in this, in their version of Titus, is they add more ensemble numbers. They add more choruses. This is something that you see more in comic operas than opera serias, so it's a little bit of bleeding of the genre lines here. But adding more choruses, of course, lets Mozart write more choruses of praise for the emperor. So you have lots of bodies on stage and people, a huge sort of unified voice singing praises. Choruses are really useful and important for this kind of thing. Let's take a look at the last scene. This is where everything kind of has to force itself to work out. Sesto is facing execution for his part in the plot, but then Titus ends up granting him and Vitellia clemency. And you have this line, let it be known to Rome that I have not changed, that I know all, forgive all, and forget all. This is, you know, enlightened absolutism at its best, followed by a big chorus in the same key that we heard at the beginning of the opera. So we're back where we started and we're stable and we're going to exit out of the theater into enlightened Habsburg rule. 
This is a quote, though, with a very tangled history. Let it be known that I've not changed. I know all, forgive all, and forget all. This is something that is in the Corneille play. This is something that's in Metastasio's original libretto, and also finds its way into the mouth of Marie Antoinette. There's an incident in 1789 where she and her husband are forced from the palace by a mob of peasant women, and they march them from Versailles to Paris. And after this all kind of dies down, Marie Antoinette is sort of testifying in front of a judge about what happened, and she says, I have seen everything, I have known everything, and I have forgotten everything. Marie Antoinette was a big fan of plays, so she was quoting one of the versions of Clemency of Titus, where this came from. And so she tries to evoke, evoke this family history of association with Titus, but of course it fails her, ultimately. Um, this sort of benevolent despotism ultimately uh, collapses under her. But it's, you know, it's here. And uh, it makes its way into the Mozart opera as well. The thing that I um, find striking about this production is that the way it plays the tyranny of clemency, the absolutism of clemency, at that last gesture, Titus throws the blindfold back at Sesto carelessly, as if this whole incident was nothing to him. Rebellions will always be crushed. It will always be a shameful thing to do. It will always be beneath him. And Sesto is now forever indebted, forever indebted. He's so shamed that he is forever indebted. And this is that consolidation of power. Through generosity and forgiveness, he can win the love of his subjects. And that revolution will bring nothing but defeat and shame. Thank you. Have a great rest of your day. You've been listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thanks, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.